If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Psychic Teachers. I'm your host, Deb Bowen. And I'm Samantha Fay. And we are, as we are every year in October, in spooky season. And what better to talk about during October than historical information on some fairly well-known witches. And we're going to focus our discussion on witches of Great Britain from centuries ago. So sit back, get a cup of tea, and join us as we begin our discussion about a woman named Joan White, but White is spelled W-Y-T-T-E, and she is from Bodmin, Cornwall. So I have to tell you, folks, I love the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in the town of Boscastle, Cornwall in England. My first trip there was life-changing, and my second trip there was pretty darn close to life-changing. But it's a fascinating and haunting place, to say the least. And today, it is haunting to me because there's a, a, an exhibit in the museum, pretty much just as you begin your journey through the exhibits, that shows the horrible torture instruments of the women, primarily, who were killed during the witch uh, craze. And on the wall behind all of these horrible instruments is name after name after name of mostly women who were killed during this time. However, the haunting of that is, is a visceral reaction for me. But the museum was once home to another kind of haunting, the kind we typically think of during this time of year, a haunting by an unhappy spirit. So let me tell you the story of Joan White. Joan White was born in Bodmin, Cornwall, in 1775, and she died at the age of 38 in 1813 of bronchial pneumonia while she was incarcerated in the Bodmin Jail. Research by the curators at the museum say that she was a healer, a clairvoyant, and a white witch. However, in the last years of her life, she suffered horrible pain from from an abscessed tooth from which she could not heal herself. She became so crazed with the pain that she became violent and so aggressive and strong 
that townspeople thought she was possessed by a demon. She was a tiny little woman. And she, but however, she was a piece of work and she was imprisoned for public brawling and died in the jail, earning herself the nickname, the fighting fairy woman of Bodmin because she was so cantankerous. James Chapel, who was the governor as he was, they were called then, of the Bodmin jail from 1780 to 1827, said in an interview with the press that, quote, yes, I admit that we have had women that we could not tame, but never a man. And, and what he meant by that was that she was one of the few women they couldn't tame. Joan's remains were treated so horribly after she died. William Hicks, who was another governor of the Bodmin jail, would rig fake seances, setting her bones at the table during a dinner party. Isn't this bizarre? And guests ask her questions. Concealed guests under the table would make her arms knock on the table to indicate yes or no answers. However, it is claimed that a poltergeist began beating guests about the head and shoulders with three of Joan's bones when they would pull these kind of stunts. And that ended the fake seances and her bones were kept locked in a cupboard for many years. So eventually, after some years, Cecil Williamson, who was the original owner and developer of the Museum of Witchcraft, uh, came into possession of Joan's skeleton and he displayed it in the museum until 1998. And if I, you go to the museum's website, I think you can see pictures of, of how Joan's bones used to be displayed. During that time, he had forensic exams done on the skeleton. And it was determined that it was indeed the skeleton of a 30-ish, maybe 35-year-old female, small, who smoked a lot of tobacco using a clay pipe. They were able to determine that she lived primarily on bread. And interestingly, I found this fascinating given her tooth decay. She was from an area of Bodmin where a holy well would have been her primary water source. And ironically, the water from this well was high in fluorides and other minerals. You would have thought that might have helped prevent tooth decay, but no. She was also found to be missing bones from her right hand, both feet, and her right patella. Perhaps these were the bones that were used in the seance? We don't know. And while her bones were on display in the museum, the museum was plagued by strange paranormal activity and poltergeist occurrences. Eventually, the curator of the museum became a wonderful man named Graham King, who actually had an opportunity to meet. And he enlisted the aid of Cassandra Latham, who is a professional witch from Land's End in Cornwall, to help him find out what was going on, why these poltergeist activities were happening. Miss Latham was able to reach Joan White, and Joan was very clear that she no longer wanted to be on public display. She wanted a proper burial, and she was given such. A respectful ceremony occurred, and her bones were interred in Minster Wood. Her headstone reads, Joan White, born 1775, died 1813 in Bodmin Jail, 
buried in 1998, no longer abused. You can also see pictures of her headstone on the internet as well. So I'm so glad that Joan finally found her resting place. Did the poltergeist activity at the museum stop after she was buried? Yes. Wow. That's something you see so often in ghost stories, that they just want a proper burial. And I believe Joan did. Interesting. Okay, our next witch we're going to discuss is affectionately called Mother Shipton. Ursula Shipton is called England's most famous prophetess. She was born in England around 1488, and she predicted the fate of several of England's leaders and is also famous for having predicted the Great Fire of London in 1666, the defeat of the Spanish Armada, and the invention of iron ships, among many other predictions. Now, legend says she was born during a great storm in a cave when her mother was just 15 years old. Even though her young mother was dragged to court to announce the name of the baby's father, she never did reveal his name, leading many people to believe that the father was actually the devil. Doesn't that kind of remind you of Merlin's birth story? Yeah, it does. So a lot of this is legend. We don't know how much of it is true. So Mother Shipton was raised in those caves for at least the first two years of her life. But then the local abbot had a local family take in baby Ursula and send her mother to a convent. And poor Ursula never saw her mother again. She had a difficult childhood. She was teased for being born with a crooked back, a large nose, and twisted legs. So just think about this poor woman. Like, you know, she lost her mother. She doesn't know who her dad is. She's being raised by this family who, by all accounts, was a very kind family. But, you know, we don't know. And then the whole local townspeople already think she's a witch because they think her mother was this, you know, harlot who... I don't know, coerced or copulated with the devil. And then Ursula's born, by all accounts, looking like the quote-unquote stereotypical picture from the old days of a witch. So she spent most of her time alone in and around the caves where she was born. And it was here that she taught herself and learned about herbs, flowers, and how to make remedies and potions. She married a young carpenter named Thomas Shipton when she was 24, but he died shortly after their marriage before they could have children. She is said to have played tricks on people to avoid getting picked on. There are tales of windows cracking after some local boys peered in to mock her appearance. She helped out a neighbor who had some items of clothing stolen from her home. The following day, a woman went walking through the town singing, I stole my neighbor's smock and coat for I am a thief and then walked right up to Mother Shipton and left the stolen items and curtsied and walked away. So a lot of people believe that Mother Shipton had put a spell on her so that she would return the stolen items. Now, so after her husband died just two years into their marriage, local gossip started to whisper that she was a witch who had killed her husband. So once again, she retreated to her cave. But soon, people from all over sought her out for her herbal remedies and cures. Then she began sharing her predictions, and it was interesting because she wrote them down very similar to Nostradamus, and she put them in in canning jars. So she'd write them in poem and verse. One of her first predictions did not make sense at the time to locals. She said water would come over the Ausbridge and reach a windmill that would be set on a tower. 
But when a water system was constructed a few years later to bring water across this bridge in pipes that reached a windmill, suddenly the townspeople started to listen to Mother Shipton. She also predicted the destruction of Trinity Church in Yorkshire, which she said would, quote, fall in the night till the highest stone in the church be the lowest stone of the bridge. Not long after this statement, a terrible storm fell upon Yorkshire, destroying the steeple of the church and causing it to land on the bridge. Now her fame and reputation started to spread all over England. Many historians even believe King Henry VIII sought her help after writing about the, quote, Witch of York in a letter to the Duke of Norfolk. Today, you can still visit her cave. It's a tourist attraction, and I went online, Deb. It's so popular, you have to reserve your spot online. And it looks beautiful. It's tucked away in the woods. There's a lovely well nearby, so similar to our first, which there's this you know, idea of her kind of doing these spells and using the water from this well. It looks like a really neat place to visit. Yeah, I understand it is really quite interesting. The Mother Shipton was quite well-known uh, as her prophecies certainly began to come true. There are f- drawings of her that you can see where, you know, she really is one of the reasons we have that stereotypical image of the witch. She is hunched over and, and crooked and hooked nose and, and all of that. She's very sad in many ways. Very sad, but she seems like such a nice person. I couldn't find a negative thing written about her. She just seemed like she was very kind and was always willing to help other people. Absolutely, she was. The next person we're going to talk about is Thomasine Blight. She had many different names. The the other one that she's most well known for is Tammy Blee. She was born in 1793 and is best remembered as one of the Pellers, P-E-L-L-A-R, of West Cornwall. The word Peller, Witch, Cunning Person, and Conjurer have similar and related meanings in British folklore, and she was called all of those names. It is thought that she only performed good deeds, like Mother Shipton, was a healer of some renown, and was able to remove curses performed by those who practiced the dark arts. And she was also called a, quote, fortune teller. We don't know very much about her early life, but it is documented. We don't know anything, for example, about her first husband. But it is documented that her second husband, whose name was James Thomas, had similar powers, and he was frequently her rival. They didn't always get along very well. One of the famous stories about her says that even when she was on her deathbed, People would come to see her. Some of them carried in on stretchers, still wanting her help, even though she herself was dying. Other people still wanted stuff from her, wanted healings from her. Many of them laid down on the bed beside her, it is reported, and Rose Heward. Her portrait was painted by a well-known Cornish painter whose name is W.J. Chapman. We'll post that picture on our Facebook page. I think she died in 1856. Yeah. But again, one of those kind and caring people who even on her deathbed helped other people. You know, I think that our views of death are so different now, don't you? I mean, my mom always would tell us stories about the wakes for her grandparents being held in their home 
And oh, you know, yeah. she'd go downstairs in the middle of the night and there'd be her grandfather laid out in the living room. And, and she talked about how it kind of freaked her out, but that's the way it was done. And, and that's in the fifties and sixties. So can you imagine are, way back then? Yeah, I can. I mean, because Kadeth was right there in front of you. It wasn't like you could go put it in a mortuary somewhere down the, the road and, and not have to look at it. It was right there in, in your face. In in the South, our old houses in the South would have a door on the parlor, usually, from the main entrance hall that was hinged in a different way than we typically hinge doors so that it was easily removed. And it was placed on two sawhorses in the parlor and the body was placed on the door while the coffin was being built. And that door with the body on it was called a cooling board. That was the name of the door when it was laid across the, the sawhorses. You know, we've got Uncle Tom here on the cooling board. Wow. You know what else I found interesting about these stories so far is so many of them had difficult upbringings or lonely childhoods. And that's something you see even today with our well-known intuitives and healers. I mean, remember our show we did on Chico and he had a very difficult childhood and was often alone and wandering about in the in the land by himself. Emmanuel Swedenborg was also often alone talking to the angels. Uh, William Blake was off with the fairies as a kid. We have Edgar Casey, of course, who was often wandering around by himself. Isn't it interesting that that's a theme that pops up again and again? Absolutely. It gives a lot of credence, I think, to these new research studies that are coming out showing how important our interior world is. And any moment we can take to just daydream, look out the window, or just get lost in our own thoughts is so helpful. There was a new study I read last week, I need to find it and post it on Facebook, that showed 60 minutes in a forest has been shown to be better for you than meditation, than exercise, than so many other things you commonly think about for decreasing stress. Oh, I would believe that. I think that's true for walking on the beach too. You know. Yeah. Well, yeah. Anytime out in nature. All right, let's take a quick break before we jump back into our discussion of witches. Deb, do you want to tell people what you have coming up? I do, Samantha. I'm working on my newsletter now. It's out on, I think it's around the 18th of October. No, the 14th, yikes, of October. My newsletter will be out. So you can subscribe to that on my website, debbowen.com. I'm planning on offering my intro to Tarot Course, my Unlocking the Mysteries of Tarot Course in November would love to have you join me for that. Sounds great. And if anyone's going to be in the Virginia Beach area, be sure to come see me. I'll be at the Edgar Casey ARE conference on Saturday, November 5th, talking about psychic tools. So we're going to do a deep dive into psychometry, pendulums, crystals, all sorts of great stuff. You can find out more about that on the Edgar Casey website, edgarcasey.org. And a special thank you to everyone who has taken time to leave such kind and wonderful reviews on Goodreads and Amazon about my book, The Awake Dreamer. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No okay, let's get back to the show. We're going to leave England for just a moment and talk about a famous, famous trial that happened in Scotland. I actually bought a book on this woman, Deb. Have I dug into it? No, I have not. It makes me feel like I'm back in grad school. It is so well researched. I need like the grace of space and time to dive into it, but I really do want to. I'm talking about a Scottish woman named Agnes Sampson. She was known in Scotland as a cunning woman, a healer, and a midwife. She was born and worked in Haddington and was said to have learned the black arts from her father. But she did a lot of good work too. She was known as a good midwife and healer. Townspeople called her the wise wife of Keith. She administered powders to the sick and was known to have created a concoction made from eggs soaked in water and vinegar with iris flowers that was said to help cure illness. She made a whiskey concoction for backaches. However, it is said she used wax figures for spells to bring on death if customers paid her. And she was known to recite a bastardized version of the Apostles' Creed to predict recovery or death. She was first accused of witchcraft in 1589 for trying to ease a woman's pain and labor, but they couldn't find any evidence of this, so she was released. But then in 1590, a young maid was accused of witchcraft and under torture, she gave up evidence against Agnes. She was then arrested and taken to Edinburgh. Her testimony is one of the first accounts that was used in the witchcraft craze. Agnes, again under torture, told how she and several other men and women would meet in fields at night where the devil would greet them with an obscene kiss, quote-unquote. To make matters worse, she said the devil was plotting against King James and even admitted to using witchcraft to create a storm, which prevented his new bride from arriving in Scotland. This is when King James himself got involved. According to legend, she told King James about private matters only known to him and his wife, words spoken on their first marital night together. And she said she used magical means to listen in on this conversation. However, most historians believe she might have simply known a servant who worked in the king's bedchamber. King James wrote that this made him wonder greatly and swore by the living God that he believed all the devils in hell could not have discovered the same. Her testimony stirred up and ignited the fear and imagination all across the British Isles. She talked about using dead cats, toads, and even, quote, the most important part of a man in her testimony. She also testified to digging up corpses for body parts needed in certain spells and rituals. And according to history, they did find a finger bone, toe, and knee joints of disinterred corpses in her house. Still, I don't know, what would any of us do or say if we were tortured hour by hour, day by day, like she was for nearly two months? By January 1591, she had confessed to 58 of the 102 accusations against her. The next day, she was strangled and then burned at the stake. One thing I wondered on that last thing I just mentioned, do you think that a lot of them were strangled before being burned at the stake? You mean like she was dead by the time they put her on the fire? Right. Or at least knocked unconscious from the strangulation. I don't know. I I sure would hope so. We're not talking about, because it would actually, we could do a whole 
episode on this, the witches of Pendle Hill, the Hindle, Pendle Hill witches. I think we've talked about them before in, in parts of other episodes, but that's a very well-documented story and has tremendous impact on how court proceedings are done today in England and in the United States. And those people experience the same kind of things that under such horrible torture, they would say anything to try to get the torture to stop. Exactly. Yeah. And I think you have to put it in context too, right? So King James's mom was Mary Queen of Scots. And she spent most of her life locked up by Queen Elizabeth I, you know, because Mary was Catholic. So King James was like super anti-Catholic. And after this whole witch scandal, he is the one who had that new translation of the Bible, which most of us know as the King James Bible. And if you look at those trends, a lot of the stuff he approved to be translated uh, turned words like woman into witch or, you know, just it's super wonky the way those translations went. And I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. I mean, no, our no. listeners probably are, but I mean, I think a lot of people who just pick up a King James Bible says, you know, oh, well, look, it's right here, witches are bad. But I think you have to look at the history of what this, what this young man went through. You know, I mean, his mom was in prison for her beliefs and, and, you know, Catholics even now, but especially back then, very, very superstitious and super okay with, you know, praying to saints and lighting candles and doing rituals to, you know, have their prayers heard better. And so the, the two kind of flowed a little bit better. I think that this one testimony and trial really changed King James's mind and cemented his hardcore views. And, and I just think it's interesting to, to look at that. And I think you bring up an excellent point, even, even beyond what you're saying here, is that when we look at this kind of historical situation, we really do have to look at it in its context of the larger world around it. And that's true for every person we've been talking about in this episode. And just the whole notion of that word witch or feller or cunning person, all, all of that needs to be put in the context of beliefs and how beliefs may have been changed or influenced by politics and, and other factors throughout the area in which somebody lived. Yeah, exactly. And what was known at the time. I mean, I read about another witch I didn't include here because I don't think she was a witch at all. I think she was just a person of unfortunate circumstances. She was homeless and she would go around kissing people. And after she kissed them, some of them would die. Well, we didn't know a lot about germs and transferring germs. And so when people got sick, you know, they just thought she had put a curse on them. And so she was accused of witchcraft. Maybe she just had an illness, was a carrier for something, right? Yeah. There's another famous witch from Ireland in the 14th century. I didn't include her because she had four husbands and they all died very quickly after they were married to her and she assumed all their wealth and property. I don't think she was a witch. I think she was a poisoner or maybe just very unlucky in who she chose for her husbands. I don't know. But I think that, you know, there, there's just so much we didn't know back then. And that was just an easy finger to point. True. And and that's not to say that there were not some mean women. I mean, there were. No. Remember the Oracle Glass by Merkel? Oh. We've name? talked about La Boisson on this show. Yeah, we have. The um, Age of Poison. I love that story. 
And I, of course, hated it. <laughs> I did. And then there was another book that, that you made me read about that same era. Yes, in City of Poison. Oh, I have to find that. That was such a good book. Be I think the reason why I love the Law of Wasson story isn't because it's so dark and awful, but because of what it triggered. I mean, it triggered this whole awareness of poison. And it it's what started our first police department. It started in France because of this whole case. So that isn't to say that there are not some mean people out there. There are. But by and large, certainly the stories that, that we're focusing on are, are women who, by whatever circumstance or, or situation, ended up in, in being seen in a light that may not have been at all accurate or true of who they were. Okay, I just found it. It's called City of Light, City of Poison, Murder, Magic, and the First Chief of Police by Holly Tucker. Yeah, it was a fascinating book. And, you know, and then, of course, we can talk about the, the Mistress of the Art of Death, which had nothing to do with witchcraft, and yet it appeared to, but it was really about one of the first women physicians to come to England from Sicily, I believe, who understood that washing your hands could make a huge difference in a whole country. That was right. such a good book, too. It was a great book, too. I don't remember who wrote that. The Mistress of the Art of Death is the name of the book. I'll look it up. You do that while I tell people about the Witch of the Wookiee Hole, shall we? Okay. All right. So in the Somerset County region of southwestern England, there is an area called the Mendip Hills. And the Mendip Hills are absolutely lovely. They have a beautiful stone called a Mendip Potato Stone that has quartz and some other uh, agates and stuff mixed together. That's a lovely stone. But in any case, what I want to talk about, about Mendip, is a set of caves that's called the Wookiee Hole. But the caves were fascinating places. Prehistoric animal bones, rocks that are in like the Mendip stone that's indigenous only to that region, and other geological formations and wonders can be found in these great caves. And one of the most popular stories, it's not too far from Wells, if you're trying to locate this on a map. One of the most popular stories about the area is a particular cave that is now a part of a thriving amusement and educational complex appropriately called the Wookiee Hole. And here, the legend of the Wookiee Hole Witch is one of its most popular stories. The Wookiee Hole Witch's story begins more than a thousand years ago or so it's said, in which people in the nearby village declared a woman who, of course, lived alone to be a witch. They blamed everything that went wrong in the village on her. When crops failed, when cattle died, when whatever happened, they said she was at fault. Her neighbors decided to do something about her, so they enlisted the help of the abbot of Glastonbury Abbey, and he sent a monk named Father Bernard to assess the situation. And the local folks cautioned Father Bernard about following the witch deep into the cave because they believed that this particular cave was the gateway to hell. And if he went in, it was unlikely he would return. So poor Father Bernard, who was sent to figure this stuff out, started out on his trip just as frightened as the villagers were. So he carried with him amulets and holy objects for protection, one of which, interesting, was a chalice. And when he arrived at the Wookiee Hole Cave, 
he tried to convince the witch to leave. Now, she wasn't going anywhere. So they had quite an argument. And the witch did exactly what the villagers said she would do, which was to run into the deepest part of the cave, trying to escape the monk. Well, he had a job to do. His abbot had sent him. He had to go. So ignoring the townspeople's warning, he chased the witch through the caves and entered in, into an area that today is called Chamber One. And there's a river that runs through these caves and through the Mendip Hills. It's called the River Axe, A-X-E. And in this chamber where the river was running through, the monk collected some of the water from the river into his chalice, blessed it, turning it, of course, into holy water. Well, it's pitch black down there. So he just started sprinkling holy water all around the chamber, hoping that some of it would hitch the witch, who we knew was in hiding in the chamber. It did, the holy water did hit her, and she let out a blood-curdling scream, and then everything was silent. Shining his light in the direction of the scream, Father Bernard saw that the witch had been turned to stone. Ironically, today, of course, it is the witch who is celebrated and Father Bernard is largely forgotten. But you can now today visit these caves at the Wookiee Hole and go down into Chamber One and see this stalagmite formation and see the shape of a woman in the stone. You can make out the shape of her head looking out across the river, for example. Some of the more distinguishing features that folks claim to be able to see are her bonnet, her forehead, her nose, and her chin. So then in about 900 years later, in 1912, researchers found an ancient body thought to be that of a woman. And it was found by a man named Herbert Bloch, who was a local archeologist and geologist. So everybody got really excited. They thought they'd actually found the witch's real body. Well, when they examined the body, it turned out to be a man, it was not the witch. But next to the remains, Blotch found the remains of two goats, a bowl, a dagger, a latch lifter, I'm not quite sure what that is, and an alabaster ball, all of which can be seen in the museum in the town of Wells. Now, today, the witch of the Wookiee Hold legend is remembered at the cave in the amusement complex by an enactment of the witch of the Wookiee Hold by a carefully chosen woman. And I remember several years ago reading an advertisement for that position. There was a job opening, basically, for somebody to be the witch of the Wookiee Hole at this amusement complex. And I looked up the salary to see what it paid, and it was right good. <laughs> I thought, I could go over there and do this. I could live in, in the Mendip Hills and enact the role of the witch of the Wookiee Hole. I obviously didn't, but I thought it might be fun to do. But somebody does. There, there is a woman who portrays this character, basically, in this amusement place. But who knows the truth of what happened with the Witch of the Wookiee Hole? Okay, I'm looking at the picture of the stone. Huh? Did you look at it? Uh-huh. It doesn't look like a person. I do see like an eyes formation in the stone. We see what we want to see. And like an angry grimace, but it doesn't really look like a person. I don't know. We'll have to post this on Facebook and have listeners weigh in. <laughs> what do you think? 
I think it's a stalagmite formation. That's yeah, I, I do too. I do too. <laughs> so we've been talking about women as if the word witch was always a, related to women. And it's not. There are male witches as well. And there certainly are male cunning folk and conjurers. And one of them that I want, we want to talk about is a, main, a man named George Pickengill. And he was from Essex, which is the same place that Alice Hoffman's latest uh, practical magic book ends in the area of Essex in England. He was born in 1816. He was a farm laborer who was said to be a cunning man or another word for a folk musician. He was said to use magic to cure physical ailments, to locate lost or stolen property. There are many tales around his work, including stories about his ability to control animals, particularly horses. It was kind of a horse whisperer. And that he could control other witches in the area who were considered harmful. And he never charged for his services. However, it was said, of course, that he also threatened curses on people, particularly those who refused to assist him or give him beer. Eric Maple, who was a folklorist, uh, researched Pickengill's story in the 1960s, collecting legends about him from local Essex residents. There is evidence that locals invented great tales to please Maple, some of which may have been based on older tales about James Murrell, who was another Essex cunning man. However, research by historian Ronald Hutton confirms some of Maple's research. And Ronald Hutton, of course, is one of the world's leading experts on these kind of stories. In the 1970, occultist Bill Lytle said he'd learned that Pickengill created the structure from which Gardner invented Wicca in the 1950s. But this has been refuted by historians and scholars. So, so basically, there's a lot of controversy about what is, what is truth and what is legend and what has sprung up over the past hundred years about this man. So was he really all of these things or did the local people try to impress this folklorist Eric Maple about him and were using stories from somebody else, even though Ronald Hutton confirmed a lot of these stories. And then there sprung up this whole idea that the whole foundation of what today we call modern Wicca came from Pickengill. And yet there's a lot of folks and historians who refute that idea. What we do know is that Pickengill died in 1909. And he told townspeople as he was dying that he would demonstrate one last time his magical abilities at his own funeral. And it is reported that when the horse-drawn hearse carrying his coffin arrived at the churchyard, the horses stepped out of their harnesses, confirming from Pickengill's perspective that he really was a horse communicator, a horse whisperer. And even after he died, there was much controversy about him. And that still goes on today. Folks are still trying to decide whether he really was who he said he was. Did he do the good deeds he said he could do? Was he the forerunner of modern Wicca? We'll never really know, actually. But it's an interesting thing. 
So this all makes me think, you know, we've been interviewing a lot of people who have written about magic and witchcraft, and we've asked a lot of them, you know, tell us about a spell that worked. What have you noticed about their responses? To me, it sounds like modern day manifesting rather than boil trouble and, you know, (laughs) abracadabra stuff. I mean, what do you think? Do you think these people actually did what history claims they did? Or do you think it's aspects of the unconscious we haven't yet explored and fully understood? I wonder if it's a combination. I, I wonder if it's exactly as you're proposing, that it's that it's manifesting and it's in conscious setting or conscious even setting intentions. But are there aids to that? And for example, the plant world, are there things that, that help to focus that energy? Are there properties of certain plants, for example, that may uh, work with that and help with that. I mean, how many times have we heard rosemary for remembrance and you should plant that by your garden gate? So I I don't know what the answer to that is, but I certainly know that more and more research that I do, I see that the intent of most of the folks that at least I've researched has been to do good and to be helpful to the world. Yes. And I think that's really important to remember. And I think you're right. It could be both. And I think that's why it's important to always examine these stories with an open mind, but also a critical eye. I think it's great that history is now starting to treat their stories with so much more respect. It's about time. Oh, absolutely. So this was a gentle introduction to spooky month. Do you feel (laughs) spooked out, Deb? Because I know you hate spooky month. (laughs) But I love these stories. And uh, so I'm I'm okay with this episode, Samantha. Okay. All right. Well, if you guys are like, uh, ladies, this is not spooky enough, just stay tuned because I'm going to be bringing you a very spooky show towards the middle of the month. And Deb's not going to be with me, but my daughter Olivia will be, and it'll be spine tingling, I promise. Y'all enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening. And please remember, as always, to be the light for yourself and others. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to Psychic Teachers, your podcast for seekers, lightworkers, mystics, and magical thinkers. If you like the show, please tell a friend or leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. For more information, check out our Facebook page, Psychic Teachers, or our websites, samanthafay.com and debbowen.com. I have a new book out called The Awake Dreamer, Lucid Dreaming, Astral Travel, and Mastering the Dreamscape. You can find it wherever books are sold. Thanks for listening and have a great week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.